It was last week. It was a week ago. And we were thinking about the theme of darkness and light. That's one way to access what the Bible has to say about this time of year, darkness and light, and the hope from Isaiah chapter 9 that Jesus brings. Um, Isaiah 11, we could say, is another aspect of Christmas, the narrative, the story of Christmas. And it's not about light and darkness. It's more about, it's about waiting. Now, you wait for a ton of things all the time. It could be a train. If you're on Southwest this month, it's going to be for a whole long time you're waiting. It might be for a loved one to, to call you. Do they, are they interested in me or not? Why is the phone not buzzing with a text? Perhaps they've moved on. Perhaps I read the signs wrong. Um, what about a pay rise? I'm just waiting and you might have to wait for a whole long time for that one. What about waiting for Christmas? What about waiting for... What about waiting? Waiting's everywhere. And the whole season of Advent is about waiting for his coming. It's about preparing ourselves for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming King. That's what Isaiah is communicating in the first 12 chapters of his prophecy, his prophetic book written nearly 3,000 years ago now from our datum, 800 years before the coming of Jesus claims the Bible. Isaiah wrote these words and the first 12 chapters are about kingship. In verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 1 you read of four kings. Isaiah ministered in the, in the ministry or, or, or the, the reign of four kings. But against the backdrop, historically, you've got another coming king whose name is Jesus. And it's the real question Isaiah is wanting us to think through is who's really on the throne of history? Under whose reign would you like to live? Under whose rule would you be cared for and protected and provided for the best? Is it an earthly king with all their sin and struggles, all their weakness and little understanding of strength, or is it the king of the cosmos? Would you be better to trust your life into his hands and to trust and hear his promises? It's the kings of the world versus God's king. That's chapters 1 through 12. And in chapter 11, really quickly, we come to a very important passage that again is looking forward to God's king, the Messiah, God's anointed king. And because it's a sermon, it's three things. It's the justice of the king, and it's the wisdom of the king, and it's the identity of the king that I think we can see from Isaiah chapter 11. Justice, wisdom, and the identity of the king. Let's see if we can work through those three things. The justice of the king, it's in verse 4 that we would have seen, but we heard. Verse 4, look at the sentence forward me, please. With righteousness, he, this king, God's king, with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. At first sight, it's the judge. It's the judge with a tea towel, if we're playing at home, or the judge with a wig on, with a, with a gavel, hitting a piece of wood at the front of a courtroom. That's the scene that we hear if we are English speakers. With righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions. And that formal sort of setting that we may come to from that word is very actually unhelpful. To judge often means to condemn. For judge means to bring a ruling. It's formality, it's distance. There's the judge behind the bar and then there's someone who is not sure how the decision is going to go in front of him or her. That's not what it means. It's, it's more the second part of that sentence. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Isaiah is saying this king, God's king, will make crooked things straight. The needy, those who don't have a voice, this king will advocate on their behalf. He will put things right. He will make the right decisions for the poor. 
He will make right decisions for the weak. It doesn't quite come out as clearly in our English translation. You've got the word poor there in sentence four as well, verse four. The poor, the downtrodden, those without power, those marginalised, those without big houses or the right postcodes, those who are needy. This king will give decisions on their behalf. He will speak and advocate on their behalf. He will stand in their place. That's this king. He's the great Denzel Washington. By that I mean he's the great equaliser. He's the one who you want not against you. You want him on your side. Or Edward Woodward if you're into the 80s. A bit more kind of socially acceptable. Denzel Washington's a bit violent. But he's going to identify with the poor and the needy. He's going to give them a hearing. He's going to make the right decisions on their behalf. He's not going to overlook them. He's going to use all his power and might and strength on their behalf. And if that's kind of your heart thinking, whoa, I'd love some of that, just wait till you get to verse 6. If it's a little trickle of hope, then comes a flood of hope from sentence 6. Famous verses. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Sounds like planet Earth. Sounds like kind of a David Attenborough um, little uh, expose or a documentary. But this is poetry. It's a poetic understanding of the future. from The spirit of God as he takes the hand of the prophet Isaiah. And he says this king is not some kind of civil servant who's going to make... Make life better for those who are in need. Make life better for those who are vulnerable and overlooked. This is a king. This is not a civil servant. He's going to make a whole new world. He's going to get rid of death. He's going to get rid of disease. He's going to get rid of violence. There's going to be no more stabbing or shooting. He's going to get rid of suffering. He's going to make everything wrong right. This is not a civil servant. This is the king. This is God's king. This is God's Messiah. And he's going to come. And so Christian is light in the darkness, but Christian is waiting. He's waiting for this king. It's a king who's not kind of floating above the ground. It's a king who's not in a golden carriage. It's a king who's not in a bulletproof beast that arrives across the shores for a million pounds or something like that. This is a king who identifies with his people. Verse 4, he speaks justice. Verse 6, it's a new community and a new way of life and a new creation. People who are kings, one of the issues for the uh, uprising is that uh, normally the French, they're pretty good at that, with their yellow tabards. There's an uprising, we're not getting what we want, let them eat cake, all that stuff in history. The king or the queen struggles sometimes to relate to the common man or woman. But not this king. In Luke 2, when this king arrives, there's this wonderful little interesting statement about the poverty of the family of the king. The king arrives to a poor family, so Luke 2 tells you that when he goes up to be circumcised on the eighth day, his family bring two turtle doves. Because in the time of the first century, it was means tested at the temple. And if you had lots of money, you would bring one thing. If you were very poor, you would bring what you could, which is two turtle doves to to bring as a sacrifice. And this king was in no golden chariot. This king was not on a throne. This king was born into the poorest of families, No general here, no philosopher here, no distant person. Here was a king, a carpenter's son. And listen to his priorities as well. He was a king who didn't just preach as he grew up, didn't just speak truth from an ivory tower. 
Here is a king who spoke truth but identified with the poor and the needy, who healed those people who were sick, who touched the hand of the leper, who raised the dead, who fed the hungry. And what does that mean, Christian friend? It means a lot. We haven't got a lot of time, but it means this, I think. The priorities of the king, if you're a Christian, must be your priorities too. We want to be a church community that knows the gospel, that speaks truth to friends with wisdom and compassion, and yet we're unflinching on the truth. But if that's all we are, then we are not Jesus-like. Jesus didn't speak from afar, did he? He got up close and personal with humanity. He came into creation. didn't commute to the poor. He came up very close. And a challenge for me from this passage and from the gospel as a whole is that it's very, very easy to send a check. Salvation Army posters come through the door again this week. It's very easy just to give to food bank from afar. But the call of Christianity is not to be distant, but to become close, to become involved in a non-superior way with anyone who's in need. Big subject. I'll let Dave speak about that next time he preaches. But Christmas points us in that direction. It's light in the darkness. And it's waiting for the king, who's a king of justice and advocates for those who are poor and needy. It's the justice of the king. Here's the wisdom of the king. Point number two, the wisdom of the king. Look at sentence two, right up at the top of chapter 11. What does it say here? What's this king like? The spirit of the Lord will rest on this king, this messianic king. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and of power. Notice the pair, please. Power and might go together with counsel and wisdom. It's not one or t'other. It's not either a wise man or woman, but they don't have the power to do what they know is right. It's not someone who has the power but doesn't have the wisdom to know how to use it. Here is the king, God's king, and he has the power to do something and he knows exactly what's the right thing to do. He knows the best way to get things done. Verse 3, sentence 3. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. That's another picture of picture language for wisdom. Think of all the times that you've bought a lemon. I've bought a few lemons in my time. It's on eBay. It looks too good to be true. That's because it is too good to be true. When you get it, when it arrives... Um, you realise why you paid so much for something that wasn't so good because it wasn't quite right. So there's the coffee maker that stank of smoke and the seller forgot to put it on the detailed description so we had to sift it so green became a lighter green so we could get the smell out. There was the car we bought that we thought was okay until all the lights came on like a Christmas tree but it wasn't Christmas because it was bust. Everybody has bought a lemon in their life, haven't you? Because we look, we make decisions by what we see, by the words we hear, by what we understand. Listen to this king. Verse 3, he will not judge, he will not make decisions by what he sees or decide by what he hears. That looks good, I'm going to get it. She looks good, he looks good. I'm going to pursue them and then mistakes are made. This king has perfect wisdom, sentence 3 says. It's one of the major themes of the Christmas story. Light and darkness, waiting, and wisdom and wonder. It's there with the wise men, with, with the magi that come from afar, whether they're astronomers or not. There are lots that can be written and discussed about that. But isn't it interesting how the wisdom of the world comes before the king 
the king who was promised and the king who came. And what do they do? They bow before him. It's a picture of what this passage and what the gospel describes. The wisdom of the world bows before the wisdom of God. That always happens. Let me give you three examples. How God turns the wisdom of the world on its head. Think about success. Think about how the world would define success and popularity and prestige. And think how God turns that on its head. If you're not sure what I mean, think back to 2012. In 2012, we had the Olympics. If you were like me, I thought the Olympics being a pessimistic, kind of Victor Meldrew kind of spirit, I thought they were going to be a complete flop because we never do anything well. And they were overwhelming success. They were absolutely brilliant. I just had to eat my hat. Do you remember how it began with that wonderful opening ceremony? The Queen got involved. And there was a Queen and there was a James Bond played by Daniel Craig and the Queen played by the Queen. And they were there in Buckingham Palace and there was this great moment where you think, hang on, the Queen's on TV with Daniel Craig. And then it got even better because the Queen jumped out of a helicopter. Do you remember that? And down came Daniel Craig. This is the kind of thing he does, James Bond out of the helicopter. But the Queen is parasending down onto the Olympic Park. What's going on? And there were thousands of people looking at her. And there were billions of people watching her in Buckingham Palace. And as she came out of the sky, then it transpired it wasn't her. She wasn't allowed to. It was this stunt guy. What an amazing entrance before the whole watching world. Think about how God entered the world. You're the son of God. Shouldn't you do that? Shouldn't you beam out your plan? Shouldn't you come before everybody in Jerusalem or one of the great cities of the world like Egypt? What about Alexandria with its great library? One of the great cities of the known world. Why didn't the king go there? Why did the king come and he smelt of urine? And he was surrounded by straw in a stable with poor parents. Why isn't he born in the king's palace? What's he trying to communicate? Because God and the gospel turns worldly priorities on its head. That's success. What about strategic planning? Now, there's a few people who are business consultants in the room, so I'll be careful in their territory. Think about strategic planning. It's very simple. I could do their job for them. It's uh, where are you now, where do you want to get to, and how are we going to get there? Something like that. But imagine you've got the right people in the room. And you said, these are my aims. This is what I want to achieve. I want to be so successful so that in 2,000 years from now, everybody will know my name. In 2,000 years from now, a quarter of the people will follow me. In 2,000 years from now, the majority of the world will hear and recognise my body of teaching as one of the most significant bodies of teaching in the whole of human history. I want to achieve that. Now, how do we do it? Would anyone say this? Avoid all the urban centres of the world. Avoid all the political centres of the world. In base, base your entire strategy on little out-of-town places, little villages. Make sure nobody knows your name and real mission. And just when you're getting a bit of traction in the culture, be executed in disgrace. No one would say that. And yet here is God in the gospel, who turns success on its head in the definition of the world. Strategic planning that's turned out on its head as well. Nobody would say, this is the way to do it. Because the wisdom of God makes the wisdom of the world look foolish. And the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God always bang heads together. But just like the wise men and just like the kings coming from distant lands... The wisdom of the world will always come and bow before the wisdom of God.
There's two ways. It's success and it's strategic and his supernatural. Think about the miraculous nature of the gospel. Think of the miraculous nature of the gospel. A hundred years ago, there was a huge division in the Christian church, in the West and in Europe. After the Enlightenment, there was a line of thinking that said, science can explain and disprove everything. The only thing that can be proved is measurable and factual and natural. And there's a great amount of struggle in the Christian church that says, we need to get out of the Bible anything that is miraculous, cross it out. We need to keep the ethical teachings of Jesus, but we cannot believe in the virgin birth. We cannot believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We cannot believe that men and women, boys and girls, can be born afresh by the Spirit of God. That's impossible. It's not measurable. It's not scientific. Therefore, it's not factual. No one can accept it. If we don't get rid of it, the church will die. There's a huge schism in the life of the Western church. You've got to get rid of the miracles. And yet here's what's interesting. Every church and every institution that followed that teaching is now on the decline, if it's still around at all. And yet the churches and the communities and the parts of the world that retain the supernatural parts of the gospel are thriving. Here are some figures for you. Look at these big circles for the centres of Christianity around the world. Some of you know that 100 years ago in Africa, it went from about 5% to 50% Christian in a very short period of time. Some of you know Korea, some of you are Koreans. 0 to 40% Christians in 100 years. That's about 14 million Christians at least. In China, China there's currently at least 67 million Christians. The world is changing. The wisdom of the world looks great. Christianity looks so foolish. And yet God is not mocked. And he's broken into time and space at Christmas. He's miraculously punched a hole like AJ, not onto someone's fist or face rather. God in the gospel has punched a hole in the barrier between heaven and earth. He's broken into time and space and his son Jesus. And now there's hope and there's mercy and there's power and there's changed lives. And that's a picture of it. God's church is growing. The wisdom of the world is bowing before the wisdom of God. God always wins. But no one saw it. But in that manger, surrounded by animals and straw, with smell of unmentionable uh, nostril-curdling <laughs> flavours, so to speak, there was glory in the manger as the wisdom of God broke into God's world. Nobody saw it. A success, a strategic planning. And here's the identity of the king to finish. This is what the king is like, the justice of the king and the wisdom of the king and the identity of the king. There is a miracle in this text. Did you notice it in verse 1 and verse 10? Verse 1, a well-known sentence, a shoot went to the botanical world. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. And sentence 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And his resting place will be glorious. So you think, hang on, whether you're a botanical person, whether you've got a green thumb or all your fingers are a different colour, it doesn't matter. What's going on here? Because a shoot is something that grows from, it's an origin, and then you've got a root. So you've got something that comes from something and something that gives something life. What's going on here? How can someone both be a descendant of David and Jesse and at the same time be the source of David and Jesse? That's what this is saying. Verse 1 and verse 10. This is a miracle. Because Christmas speaks of Jesus, the God-man, the category-breaking king of the universe, who's God's Messiah who came into the world. 
It busts all our worldly understanding, all our worldly presuppositions, all our worldly paradigms are blown up by the gospel and have to be reshaped and redefined. Christmas is not 2D, it's not flat, it's 3D. It's miraculous, it's supernatural. It's God's categories, not ours. What do I mean? The world thinks in 2D. When it comes to religion, the world can understand religion in two ways. Religion that's acceptable and flat and nice and simple. Well, you could have a religion of wrath and judgment and justice with the capital J, where God has his law, and if you don't meet that law, then God will get you. In a religion like that, and there are many, it's how we do, how we perform, how we measure up. And that depends on whether we get God's anger or not. It's a, it's a religion that everybody can accept and everybody can understand. It's, it's a God of wrath. But then there's another religion that's easily to understand. It's, it's wrath and then it's acceptance. You can have a, a religion where God, the supernatural God, is a God of love. And, and love includes all and God encompasses all. And no one is outside of God's love. Everything can be accepted and everything is acceptable. That's another religion that you can make very quickly. Those two religions are very easy to understand. Wrath and total acceptance. But then along comes Christianity. Along comes God's king and says, neither of those are true. Those are too basic. They're too simplistic. They're flat. But the gospel is 3D. Those two religions of wrath and acceptance, they're based on you. Whether on your capacity to love other people, your fellow man, your capacity to measure up to God's standard or receive justice. They're about you and your decisions, your work, your efforts. It's up to you to be good. It's up to you to be great and accepting. But Christianity is not so simple. It's multidimensional. It's God-shaped. And it's God-man-shaped. And it's Jesus-shaped. God's glory in this manger defines and reshapes all our strategies. This religious leader is actually more concerned with the relationship with you and me. He's not a prophet alone. He's not a wise man alone. He doesn't say, pull yourself together and come and enter into my family and my glorious future. He's the God who broke into history and says, you'll never find me, so I'll come and find you. It's the message of Christmas. God coming to find us. God searching us out. Not with a searchlight, but with himself. And he comes pursuing us. No matter how quick we are at running, and I'm getting slower, no matter how good we are at hiding, God pursues us with his spirit. And it's a sign of his grace. It doesn't come with law to condemn us. It doesn't come pursuing us with a, with a mirror that shows all our inadequacies. It comes with his spirit that shows us his son. And it's all about his transforming grace. His costly grace. It's not easy for God to rescue us. It's not just a religious of acceptance where God says, come along no matter what you look like. Come along, it doesn't matter what you've done. He says, it does matter what you've done, but I'll pay all that you need to pay. Because it's not just acceptance, it's also wrath and justice. Our mistakes, our sin, our rebellious thoughts and actions do require justice and God's wrath. But Jesus Christ says, I will take it all upon myself. It's costly grace. It's what this table points to. It's what this table describes. God taking the punishment that we deserve. Satisfying his wrath so that he can accept us. So one is not played off against the other. I don't know what you're basing your life on this morning. It's lovely to see so many visitors. I don't know what you're basing your life upon. I don't know what you're basing your life upon that will help you get through the day. 
through life, because it is hard. There's always tears around the corner. Through death, don't know what you are trusting to face death or cancer or the challenges of a career or love and romance that is often so heartbreaking. Friends, if you're not trusting God himself, anything else that you base your life upon as a foundation will fail. It's the wisdom of the world. And it's only the wisdom of God that will satisfy. It's only the wisdom of God that will last. And the wisdom of God is this king. This king who intercedes for us. This king who advocates for us. This king who grabs us by the hand and will never let go and leads us to a glorious future that death can't snatch from us, that cancer can't rob us from. And he's been revealed in this God baby called Jesus. He's the one who will return, not as a baby, but as a judge. And he's the one who grew from a baby to a man and who died on the cross so that we can be reconciled. The Apostle Paul writes a sentence in the New Testament, the new half of the Bible, and he says this, If anyone thinks he is wise, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. God's broken miraculously into the world. If you embrace that truth, if were you to become a Christian, your friends will consider you a fool. But actually, against their wisdom, it's the wisdom of God, and that admitting your foolishness, you can become wise. Let's pray.